You're listening to The Fat Guys here on The Fog Network. I'm your host, Matt Rosen, along with my fellow subject matter enthusiast and co-host, Paul Dickerson. Our goal is to be an industry source giving real insights into the renewable energy world. We strive to bring about information on how everyday life impacts the renewable world that surrounds us, with a focus on educating listeners on the history of the industry, its lessons, and the real-world impactful solutions that have come from that, along with how personal, community, and global-level decisions impact the circular fats, oils, and grease economy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Paul's not with us today, and uh, very excited to start our interview series, interviewing a, a colleague, the real Chris Draper, for those uh, Red Wings fans. That's the fake Chris Draper. Chris is uh, newly minted as the CEO of ESG Racks. ESG Racks is a RFS, compliance software, a new digital solution for, and Chris is going to get into the compliance side of our industry and how much things have changed and why this is so important things way above my pay grade and understanding. So Chris is here to help explain some of that. His new transition, very quick move from what he was doing uh, when we were working together and then now completely off on his own in the wilderness, like a baby bird leaving the nest. So Chris, thanks for joining. Thanks for giving some time to uh, chat with me today. I know. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. So Chris, can you tell us about what ESG Racks is? and why this compliance tool may be a better option than current industry compliance tools. Yeah, I think when you're looking at it from you know just a compliance platform, I think there's really sort of three reasons that what we've built, and this is a lot of it when you may downplay your role in this, but I think the, the true value of what we've developed over time is that we've been in it. I mean, we, we actually understand what the actual driver needs. We actually understand how simple it needs to be the plant. We understand the level of uncertainty in our field. So I think just apart from why we're better, I think it really comes down to three key options, right? Number one, when, when you read the reg, the EPA requires live tank modeling, not FIFO. I mean, as we all know, the grease business isn't like you put a thousand Nikes on the shelf and I can pull out, you know, box 558. So, so why is it the first pound that goes in is the first pound out? EPA knows that isn't the way uh, that the, the field works. We know we need to know when we ship a truck what percentage of what ingredients are in it. And we're the first ones to come up with a quality label, just like the ingredients on the back of a box in the grocery store that allows you to actually be compliant with what the, where the industry is going, where the rules are right now, and where we really should be. Second, our third-party storage option uh, which lets you send immutable, unhackable data thumbprints of location data to producers, uh, allows the EPA to prove invalidity, which is what we really need to do, uh, without compromising your customer list. We all know that we've built professions, careers, you know, companies on the, the ability for us to be trusted parties with our traders. And uh, just handing those over in an unprotected manner is <laughs> pretty uncomfortable. And so we built a solution that allows the EPA to prove what it needs, that levels the playing field without giving away all those decades of hard work. And you know, number three, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're built for operators because we have an operation pedigree. We know what it's like to live in a fluid costing environment. So our tech's built for the data we have. It's not needing $200 sensors or intrusive truck trackers. We deliver a certain level of uncertainty using the cheapest phone you can buy at the local pilot. So if you just drop one in the bin, 
You can spend 20 minutes, you're up and going with the same you know, world-leading compliance tech that you would have if you invested all the money that you don't need. I think when you look beyond the compliance tech piece alone, I think that the bigger picture of RAC and the advances we have planned for Grease Track, we see ourselves as a renewable reservoir service provider. Where most see grease bins, we see oil wells producing renewable crude. Uh, we see oil reserves that can help you financialize your operations. We see ESG credits uh, the industry is clamoring for. Uh, and we see the end of greenwashing and theft. I think while we've built a better compliance mousetrap right now, our vision is to grow future value, uh, not just prevent risk. It's, it's to grow with our partners. And I think that's what fundamentally makes us better is we aren't seeing our first step in this industry as the end. And we're not seeing us as being a constant cost. We're seeing us as being an ability to prove value that you know most of our producers have never been able to actualize or monetize before. You said a few things there that might need a little definition for some people who haven't been in it. The first was a live tank model versus a FIFO model and the first pound of fat. And I have a little rudimentary example here that uh, I know we talked about in the past. So if we're talking about a tank with this much water in it, a current model is this is my first product in. And if I take some of my coffee here and I poured it in, I now have this coffee water. So the old model is saying the first product I sold was the water. The second product I sold was the coffee. But everyone can see here, this is not coffee or water. It's now coffee water. So when you're saying this new live tank model, it's this is a new product. And it's not a FIFO. It's not that the first in water is the first outsold. It's a, yeah, water was in there, then coffee went in there, and now we're selling coffee water. Is that a good explanation for those who may not understand the, the difference in these two models? Yeah, exactly. I think that the we've always used FIFO, which is if I put water in first, I take water out first, because that's just how tools are always built. We sort of accepted it. But the reality, as you see, is, yeah, we, we, we don't just have water in first, then coffee, water out first, then coffee out first. You've, once you put that coffee in, you've, you've got watery coffee, right? Our product works the exact same way. You know, we see that in the plant every day. We know that's the actual truth of it. And the fact is, if you're not tracking uh, your RINs at the, at the producer level, you can find yourself in a heap of trouble by uh, not tracking your actual live tank knowing what percentage at any point of time is what piece, knowing it's 50-50 water and coffee, and it goes out 50-50 water and coffee. And now that same level of oversight is being required down to our collector and aggregator level, uh, and we need to be ready for when it goes fully enforced. So that leads me to the ingredients list. What ingredients list? Do you mean I can see how much sugar and carbohydrates and fats are in, are in these products, or what do you mean by ingredients list? Yeah, we're not down to that yet. But uh, I think the, what we're getting to first is when we say ingredients list, it, when you run a route, as, as we all know, you're, you're going to be picking up, uh, you know, 20 to 30 stops. If you got a great driver on a long day, maybe you're sitting at 40 stops or something, right? And, and all those stops go into the back of that truck and they're all, they're all co-located in the back of that truck during the pickup and they all dump into, uh, you know, your, your first, lo your first location of settling or processing uh, when you get back. Now, out of those 40, we're, we're never going to know exactly what was where, but we do know relative to the weight, which stop provided us what percentage of material that's in the back of that truck. So our ingredients list 
is looking at when I go through the rest of the process and I load onto a finished truck that's leaving my facility, we're able to know what percentage of every stop that has actually gone into being co-located together into that truck is where, what the size is, what the amount is. So we can now trace with that ingredients list, the opportunity to see, okay, these are the stops that went in here. These are where, this is where all this material came from. And if you're doing a risk-based audit, so if that ingredients list uh, goes to the EPA with every truck you send out, uh, the EPA can say, you know what, I, I want to check 10 of these to make sure that uh, this corresponds to an appropriate restaurant with the appropriate compliance information we need. And they can go and say, hey, I think this amount was coming from here. Show us. And as long as there's a contract in place to ensure that visibility is, is allowed, you can do that through the ingredients list all the way back to the source and know exactly if the quick look, you know, you, you can spot very quickly some issues. For example, there, there's no way a 46,000 pound truck can have, uh, you know, 80% coming from one bin. So if you have a quick tertiary look at this ingredients list, we can make sure it makes sense. But then we can also, again, do those risk-based audits with it to see what pickup from what location went into every pound that left that facility. So last week, we were coworkers, and today we're, I guess, colleagues. So your team resigned in mass, not so dissimilar. To, well, you weren't you weren't forced out like Sam Altman, but uh, not so dissimilar. <laughs> the the team behind you with this decision decided to move over to ESG racks, completely dissociated from the Third Coast and Third Coast family. What went into that decision? It was kind of abrupt. Many people woke up in the morning with an email from Paul stating that you're no longer with us, uh, an explanation on on why. But from your view, why did that have to happen uh, and what went into that process? Yeah, and I think the funniest part was, uh, I think the morning started with uh, Paul texting me like, what happened? Because I think we, we weren't, <laughs> some of us, it, it was quicker than I think we all expected. But I think it's something that we knew was always going to happen. At the end of the day, it's because it's the right thing to do. I'm a referee by nature, uh, as I think most people know. I, you know. I spent you know 10 years refereeing rugby up to the highest levels around the world. And the fact is, you know, when you're in the middle, you, you can't be in anyone's pocket. You're either on a side, you must clearly be on no side. Again, it isn't like you know, we pulled some midnight coup and snuck off like the Baltimore Colts or something, right? <laughs> You know, I think, uh, you know, Third Coast and Evergreen, have, you know, they've, we've signed, you know, Third Coast and Evergreen have signed up as clients, actually our second and third, ironically. So uh, we, we had another as quicker, which is nice, but we'll still be producing quality labels, uh, compliance reports as we did before. But my team's fiduciary responsibility is no longer Third Coast over anyone else. Third Coast will have to API or upload their data like everyone else. And we'll have the separation that any third party, you know, truly needs in order to be taken seriously. No matter how wide uh, you make an internal moat, e even the perception of collusion can be more dangerous than the reality. I've been in this for 20 years. I truly believe in the carbon neutral energy independence that we can bring by being truly efficient with our waste. We need to remove all threats to our credibility because if we don't actually take compliance seriously in this industry, um, the industry won't be taken seriously. And we're going to miss a massive opportunity to provide our children with a better world. And so, again, we're excited that, you know, whether, <laughs> whether you call yourself a colleague or not, the fact is I'll still be calling you when we get something weird because you've, you've, you've seen about every weird thing in this industry. 
I think we've taken a few plant tours where we've sort of wondered how on earth do they do that. But we need to make sure that there's no opportunity that uh, that, that that little sort of, well, it isn't a big deal to look at this. or isn't a big deal to look at that. Those things are big deals. We need to take the data seriously. We know that others see this differently. I've been in this reg tech, gov tech space for almost 20 years. You know, it's, 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 it's something that the reality is you must be separate or you can't hold yourself out as being independent. And for everyone listening, we will, Paul and I will have an episode of about fraud, uh, rampant fraud in, in our industry, unfortunately being the case. But there's a lot of case articles out there right now. If you want to search up RIN fraud, you can find uh, a lot of embezzlement, a lot of fraud, a lot of people in jail for a lot of years. So that's what kind of brought about more strenuous compliance. But when you, when you joined, you were almost annoying about compliance. This was before the EPA came down with their compliance mandates. And as it turns out, annoying turned to relentless about compliance and very intelligent PhD, very well accomplished in many fields, but you weren't very bean county. You were just trying to be innovative in our space. And a lot of people don't associate being innovative innovative with compliance. So how did we get innovation with adhering to strict compliance? In general, I think the compliance and innovation never really thought as being partners. And when, you know, when you're in a hustle industry that's mature, where the technology is interchangeable, um, I think of like um, HVAC, right? Rooftop unit's a rooftop unit. I, I mean, no offense to some of the cool stuff in it, but I mean, you, you've got folk who are out there with a completely interchangeable item. You know, it's like selling a car, right? Uh, there's some cool things on a car, but for the most part, car's a car, right? And there's, there's nothing on a car today it wasn't around in the 50s. So maybe like a MP3 player, right? But I mean, if, if you're looking, well, <laughs> batteries have been around longer than the rest of it. So, you know, so, so, so one could argue that, uh, well, we won't argue about Elon Musk yet. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that later. As I say, starting in the rocket business, I have plenty of thoughts there. However, the rocket business is a great example, right? The rocket business is, a, is, is an industry that is in some ways really sort of superficially simple. The technology is old, but it's aggressively complex in a lot of ways. And industries that have technology that is either being reused in different ways or is completely off the shelf, they thrive on level playing fields. They thrive on the smart regulation and they thrive on smart compliance that allows for that technology to be respected, right? I mean, when you're looking at the stuff we're in, right? We're, we're looking at advanced technology. SAF's an advanced technology. Renewable diesel's an advanced technology. You know, a lot, there's a lot of innovative waste-based fuels uh, that require a level playing field. You know, if, if you allow the snake oil salesmen to come in and, you know, say, hey, this thing's the exact same, well, you lose access and you lose price point, you lose the opportunity to invest in the stuff that's truly new innovative and is going to actually change the world. In the same way the regulations safely advance the rock industry, they're going to safely advance the grease industry and the other waste-based fuels industry if we're smart about them and if we're willing to provide the tools that allow for that meaningful level setting. We forget grease that isn't grease isn't a waste business. It's a new oil patch. It's a dynamic, constantly shifting landscape. It's serviced by a bunch of you know renewable refnecks who need to be operating safely, providing quality, full transparency. You know, the, the, those things don't just happen by accident, 
right? Those come down to, to SOPs, standard of acceptance. Those come down to being able to know that what you're doing is uh, the right thing. It's earning business through a dedication of the customer in our communities. We need a level playing field that eliminates frauds, thieves, the cheats who've held the industry back for too many years. Uh, and compliance is key to that because uh, it gives true innovators a fair shake on a level playing field. What's that level playing field worth? Yeah, this is this is one that right now, this is the big debate in some ways, but I think it's in, in some ways, a lot of the industry is struggling with how they want to view this. We all know it's unfair when the big guys get to bring in fake feedstock with no repercussions, right? We, we've all heard about, oh, this massive tanker from China is coming and just dissipated into the industry and these guys made millions off these credits. Eliminating that helps everyone. And we all know it. Yet accepting what it takes to get to a level playing field, accepting the cost that we need to put in to get that value can find resistance because most of that cost is hidden in plain sight. We currently don't even think about most of the costs. We're just accepting right now in an unlevel playing field. Uh, what's preventing access to a level playing field is it's the stacks of paper. It's the hours taken to pull information requests. I mean, when, when I first got to Third Coast, I think about our trade floor. It would take, you know, sometimes, you know, six days to pull together and find all the right scales we needed. It, it takes six minutes now, right? The emails looking for cam scans of scales, BOLs, or collecting agreements. Right now, a lot of places are. Uh, just doing their document processing by whether or not there's a read, you know, whether there's a read uh, label on an email with five people in the email system. That's it's, it's bonkers. Um, we're doing on the advanced side. We're using Excel sheets. Doing it right with the tools we have right now is a shocking time suck. You know, without smart tech, audible compliance is. I mean, when you really break it down, you're looking at 11 cents per pound of inefficiencies and errors is a conservative estimate that we saw. Eleven cents per pound is what we were store looking at. That we added up the hours, added up the errors. I mean, at Evergreen Greece, you know, as you know, <laughs> it was it was a fight, and I can say that some might call me rocket science, but I promise I was called a whole lot different uh, with a whole lot different intent quite often. But uh, we build out tools that drop document processing to two point nine minutes per doc. Work order confirmations are on the order of forty five seconds per Yuko pickup. That's with, that's with all the images, and that's with our uh, non-has uh, collection manifest. You know, uh, The transport document collection, this is where the you know, we've always had this trouble. Every place has this trouble of like, okay, I've got a third-party driver, and that third-party driver is going to maybe send our scales someday. We're down to 3.7 minutes between the time that he finishes the time we've actually got that document in the right folder processed against that load. The quicker we can do that, the quicker we can turn money, the quicker we can provide more product into the world, the quicker we can actually get paid, the quicker we can actually let individuals go home and hopefully pay for Thanksgiving dinner in a few days here, right? All of that is that cost that we don't think about. And you know, there, there, there's going to be a, a floor that we can't get below, right? Even with those innovations, the cost of compliance was roughly about 2.8 cents a pound uh, at Evergreen. But when you compare to the alternative, which is, you know, load rejections or uh, RIN invalidation, 2.8 cents a pound, number one, is, is you know, a fraction of the 11 cents we were finding before uh, compared uh, to the downside risk. Once we really take the sourcing of our material seriously, that's cheap. So there's a lot of talk about that cost, the cost to the organization or the supplier, and then the cost to the buyer. So there's been sort of a conception that, uh, 
the seller's just going to have to eat the cost. It's their product. They're going to have to be the one that pays for this sort of technology to prove their compliance. But why should a buyer also want to use this compliance tool? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the discussion around compliance cost is dealing with sort of this net zero idea that, hey, this is where we are, this is where prices are, and you know someone's going to have to add a price or take a cut or something else. As you mentioned, Paul, Paul and I started off trading, right? Trading is a dynamic world. There is no set absolute price that this thing is that. Price is whatever the market is willing to bear. And what's really fun about our business is that is an even more dynamic world than the reported numbers are, right? You look at some of the stability and some of these numbers that are out there and you're just like, boy, that's not, that's not what's really happening. Back in the early days, back in the you know, 2000s, when the whole industry had flipped from charging restaurants to actually paying restaurants, you know, we, we were in the beginning of that whole world spin. And the reality is that price is all based on what the sides are going to be able to accept. I know you've heard me probably speak at nauseum about what I call the you know, compliance margin. I really see this as an opportunity. You know, this is a difference between what a buyer could pay and what they'll be willing to pay, which is based on the risk of a load being rejected or its RINs being invalidated. When you get too many loads rejected or, you know, nearly any RIN rejection is likely going to be just the basis of bankruptcy, right? If, if you start getting loads rejected or if all of a sudden someone can't, you know, trust your RINs, um, you know, as, as we know, as you're mentioning RIN fraud, there is one group that's going around and just generating fake numbers, the tune of $42 million of, uh, of, of fraud. Um, and that not only bankrupted everyone that touched that in a meaningful way, but, you know, a few of them in prison for, you know, multiple years. So the real risk in that pricing isn't necessarily, you know, can I actually pay for this cost or who exactly takes the hit? It's that how is this industry going to absorb the fact that you're going to end up very quickly with product I can trust, that I can pay what they say it is worth, and product that we can't. So if we just even put the worst case aside, if, if you're looking at the gap in what I would call, you know, renewable crude or UCO and basically asphalt filler, that can be as wide as 85%. With the EPA audit starting, that average gap is likely to expand. Someone who may take your product without compliance docs, but if they take it, they're not paying you full price. They're paying you to allow you to dump it. If you're the person who's actually going around stealing product, if we actually are doing our compliance side right, uh, what it means is you're not going to be able to find uh, renewable crude prices. You're not going to find UCO prices. You're going to be able to find wherever you can take, and hopefully that's going to be less than it costs you to do it, and hopefully you're going to exit that market. In the future, that hit probably very, very soon that you're going to have to take if you don't have compliance docs is you know, going to be far greater than 2.8 cents for compliance cost. So fundamentally, any compliance cost is fundamentally borne by the buyer through price discovery. The seller isn't going to have a product to sell if they can't prove what they have. So that cost is going to be in the middle. The industry is going to adjust to cover that cost for product that is right. But the real value in good compliance is that the cost of not having compliance is going to be so great that you can't operate without it. Uh, so I, I think apologies for, in some ways, the longest circular answer ever. But I think that our approach is to support the seller 
make sure that where the seller right now we know is baking in 11 cents per pound in inefficiencies and errors, we want to cut that for the seller by over seven or eight cents per pound. Let them be able to get a higher value out of their product with true third-party validation for the work that they're doing and allow them to not only save costs, but provide uh, a product that they can ship out with a quality label, just like any food that goes on the shelf to make sure their product can be trusted by the, the buyers that are going to be paying renewable crude prices for that Yuko. I summarize this into one sentence. It would be that this product supports the seller and protects the buyer. Exactly. And I think in those, the numbers are, we're going to be saving already seven cents per pound on letting you do that compliance right and making sure you'll still have more access to the most valuable markets our product can offer. So one thing you mentioned in there that you got started in this industry trading with Paul. So tell me a little bit about how you actually got into this industry. Uh, it's been about two decades in and out and around this industry before this huge compliance push that we witnessed over the last two years. So two decades ago, sometime in the mid 2000s, you know, how'd you meet Paul and how'd you guys actually get started on this? What is now this 20 year journey of compliance? It's interesting because I actually started this business trying to sell shit. So uh, I was, uh, as, as you mentioned before, I started my career in the rocket business. So um, we regulated the space industry uh, when I was with the government early on. So we wrote the rules by which you build and launch rockets. Uh, so I did a lot of the early evaluations of the Falcon 1 for SpaceX. Um, so it's trying to figure out with these new vehicles, where do they go wrong? Uh, did a PhD in that and was um, from the PhD, we started building the models behind them. But as I was coming back from Scotland, where I did my PhD, I had a buddy who said, man, this green space, there's a lot of people in it. You know, we should find something there. And I'm, I'm from a small town in Iowa. And so uh, there's 26 kids in my high school class. You look at the, the schools we played football against were dying. I was tired of seeing lack of jobs, lack of opportunity, everything from brain drain to just opportunity drain. Um, and so I thought, you know, we could probably marry this stuff together. And uh, I was seeing at the time in Wales, a lot of success with the municipal incineration. Well, in Midwest, uh, one of the things that was big at this time is about 2006 was uh, digestion. Digestion, we, you know, you had uh, Micro-G was building large uh, digesters in Wisconsin. Uh, and a lot of it was volatile solids, you know, cow shit would go in with a bunch of other stuff, mix it around, you make biogas. And, uh, you know, that would make some good, high quality jobs in town. And started looking into it and trying to run the numbers on it. And the thing about shit is it has a 15 mile value radius. After that, you really can't make money off of it. And you need a density of about 200 head of cow. Well, in Wisconsin, you could hit that. But in Northeast Iowa, we started to get smaller farms. And so it turns out that if I was going to actually do a municipal project in cow shit, that I actually had to have contracts to buy shit. And it turns out no one knew what shit was worth. And so as we started looking at it, we realized I couldn't even price shit, but I couldn't price switchgrass, which everyone was talking about at the time. You had pellets were just starting. There's all kinds of things where I was like, boy, you know, we really have no idea what this is worth. And so being young and brash and uh, you know, confident, we said, you know, let's just build a trading platform in this stuff. So we did. So we built a trading platform. It had someone who was calling around just now trying to, we, we built a way to find price discovery. And then we tried to find people who want to trade on it. You know, and she calls this guy in Philadelphia and he goes, you know, F off. And uh, she says, okay. And then, uh, you know, don't think about it. Two weeks later, he calls back and says, this contracting thing is pretty cool. Like, 
what is this? And sort of explain. He's like, oh man, I've been looking for this. And turns out that was Paul. And Paul at the time was uh, trading in the, you know, trading in the vegetable oil that at the time, all you knew was the Simpsons where you got guys are going around and stealing stuff out of bins with, you know, hoses, the, the Willie's retirement grease. Right. And, uh, you know, as, as we sat and looked at this, we thought, man, we could really make this industry better. We could actually make this efficient. We can actually provide that uh, contracting efficiency because with these contracts, you had more favorable terms than you're seeing. We had actual default clauses that, that were able to allow people to get fair pricing if thing if a deal didn't go through. Everything at the time was direct damages and handshakes. Um, you know, we, we when we first started trading, when I first started trading RINs back in boy, oh seven oh nine, back when it was like twelve to thirty four cents, right? I mean, it was it's, it's Internet Messenger. Like you're you're just seeing on Internet Messenger with people in their underwear you've never met before, right? And I'm sure you know, I was doing the same some days, right? And so I mean, this was complete wild west. And as we got into it and started to realize that the realities of the business, that if you're in your mid-20s and pretty sure you're going to change the world overnight, that wasn't going to happen. We started to build our own trading group that traded on our own exchange and then realized we're going to have to vertically integrate. And as, as uh, Paul grew a heck of a lot faster than our, than our plan, he had to, he had to move on and uh, to, to actually make sure we had the funding behind the trades he was starting to do. Um, and in that process, I was looking at whether or not I wanted to really be a RIN trader in a market where uh, you sort of saw, is my trading partner moving to Florida? And if they are, I probably don't want to do any more deals with them. <laughs> so it was a funny time where every week you sort of thought that um, that everyone was, you know, thought that your opportunity was going to go away. We're pretty sure that all your trading partners are going to be bankrupt. You're getting, you know, you're fearing the call of saying, oh, yeah, I know your, your transaction isn't coming. And at the time, I judged that that wasn't where I was going to be. And so I got into really double down on the tech side of building those platforms for compliance, uh, building those platforms for digital truth, uh, getting this is where uh, the truck blockchain network came up. We got into building the tools for labor relations and labor contracting, mediations, arbitrations, getting into how, how do we allow individuals to take uh, control of the solutions to their problems in a way that doesn't require, you know, the courts and heavy regulation. How do, how do we let communities be communities? Those were the types of techs I was always drawn to, is how do we actually build these things in an innovative way that still meets the needs of our communities as, you know, really defined collectively through uh, our, our governance, our standards, our regulations. And that's what really fundamentally brought brought us back together again after, you know, a 15-year hiatus was, we currently now have the opportunity to digitally prove in a protected, distributed way the truth that we need to ensure product is what the product is without the traditional oppressive oversight I think none of us want. As you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm obsessed about compliance, but I'm also really bad with paperwork personally, because I just hate, you know, I hate sending expense reports. It's like, you know what, man, like you got, you see the credit card receipt, you know what it is. It's the, got the line on there. Why do you need all the other stuff? And you're like, come on. So there's an element of me that, that I, I really want to provide the minimum you need to prove what you need to prove that is in line with our collective view of fairness. And that's where, when we got into Troct, uh, is the blockchain network that's underpinning a lot of our validation on the rack side and underpinning our validation on the on the third coast side before the goal of that 
was to uh, provide that opportunity to give that immutable, permanent, protected evidence to secrets that you want to keep but have no other way to prove. And that's, that's where I think the real true under the hood innovations here are really, really fun. Using a no context chain like Trox Neo Public Network is, is, I think, what we saw in the legal tech space where I was at right before this is, is going to have values that most can't appreciate yet. But that, that's, that's the beauty of uh, being on the front edge of what now is, is, is going to be a new Wild West for a while, right? If we're serious about eliminating the greenwashing and fraud from these industries, we're going to see a very rapid separation between those who are doing it right and all the rest who are just, you know, scraping a buy with anything they can, they can try and pawn off on someone. And I think it's going to be a really, really fun time for those doing it right. And I'm excited to be in the, you know, hopefully in the middle of helping individuals do what they need. And as you know, just not anymore. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you don't require the expense report, I'm not sending it in. But if you're telling me that the, the actual value of this is going to be 85% more because you can actually take a few pictures, you know, we need to give you those pictures. What's the next cool thing or excited thing that Rack and Grease Track is working on for their client, for their customer, for their user? The cool thing we're doing at Evergreen. You know, I was like, you know what? I, these guys are really not great photographers. A few were. Um, but, you know, most, most of these guys aren't great photographers. Getting your gloves off and on is a complete pain, right? And so we took a camera and strapped it to the helmet, right? Took a camera, strapped to the helmet, took videos of everything they're doing. And then we've been building a machine learning model that goes off and actually pulls all your compliance images out. Uh, we're within 12.5% of, uh, of accurate on uh, bin level estimation. With Right now, we're only sitting at a few hundred images of trained the model. We've got 150,000 more images still waiting to be classified to keep moving this model along. Uh, poor Angelia is you know, buried, in <laughs> buried in images. But those types of innovations... Uh, which we'll be adding into our platform as we go. If, if I can let a driver say, hey, here's your phone that you bought at Pilot. You just log into this website. And when you arrive there, just ping, I'm here. Clicks on your camera that's on your hard hat. You're wearing a hard hat anyway if you're using a Weibo, right? But most of us aren't, right? <laughs> if you're putting a few thousand pounds over your head, you should probably be protected, right? So let's give them the hard hat. Let's put a camera on it. Let's let that thing run. And when you get back, just say, you know, put a little voice note in. Says, hey, Thing looked about half full, no trash at the bottom, looked good, right? Send that video off. It starts processing. We're all done. Someone takes 45 minutes to make sure the machine did the right thing, and off we go. We've now just cut what's right now 15 to 30 minutes of time of that wasted compliance that we don't need, improving a level playing field just through some smart innovations that the technology now can allow us to roll out faster than we ever before. When I think about what we did in 2006, 2006, 2009, the, the, the amount of effort we put in to building out where the time was really impressive for the time platform. Now, I mean, you can re-roll this thing in, 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 in days. It, it's almost sort of feels depressing in some ways, <laughs> like wasted years. But boy, the, the, the opportunity to roll out smart solutions that are built for the driver, built for the customer, built to make sure that we can prove a, a certain level of uncertainty in a caustic, volatile, fluid environment is just one of the most exciting things to be involved in. So, You mentioned a bunch of times, what is TROC? Is it isolated? Does it support RAC? You mentioned legal compliance. So what is TROC? What does it do? How does it support compliance? TROC started 
as a labor relations tool. It started as a way to get fairer contracts faster. It ironically started in the school system. How do we actually get teachers working at a fair wage quicker? Uh, How do we make sure all parties really know where the negotiation sits? Uh, It moved into uh, railroad arbitrations, moved into uh, mediations, moved into individual education plans, and then took a complete left turn uh, when we really sort of turned the negotiation platform into a side note. Where Troc sits right now is the, the most valuable part of it is that we realized no matter what agreement you arrive at, no matter what piece of documentation you actually arrive at, no matter what you have said, this is what our truth is. What Troct provides is a neo-public blockchain network that does the exact same thing as mailing yourself a certified letter. So what Troct does is it takes the digital thumbprint of any file. It's the ones and zeros of that file. It mashes them up into a hash. A hash is not encryption. It's not something you can rebuild. A hash basically is sort of like encryption that you then take the first chunk of it off. And then it stores it in a network, but not with your name attached to it. So where Ethereum says, all right, you have this coin, this is your token for your coin, and this is who has it, which allows you to figure out who has all the coins. And when we caught the Russian hackers, you caught them because we finally figured out, oh, this server is owned by the GRU. So it turns out it is Russia spending all this Bitcoin and all this stuff. Well, if that's your you know, divorce, you don't want your divorce sitting on Ethereum because now you can see, oh, this person's talking to a divorce lawyer and they made a document. Ooh, that's, you know, that's actually a, a contextual confidentiality breach. If you're looking in the Greece world, right? I want to protect my sources. Uh, if I have a compliance document, I want that compliance document to be protected but I don't want you to see that almost all my business is going to uh, going to a certain provider. Somebody will be able to say, oh, well, here's all the compliance documents protected here, but got protected by these people. So, boy, the amount of how much business are they doing, right? Those are the types of problems that when you bring in new transparency technologies, and ironically, when you bring in a lot of the blockchain technologies, we don't think about how blockchain works. We don't think about its appropriateness for the legal environment. And what we've built over the last you know, nearly decade with Troc, eight years with Troc, was a blockchain network that has zero context in the main chain, which allows you to prove something has been unmodified since the network saw it. But if that document disappears, doesn't reveal what was there if you don't want it to be there anymore. Troc is a lot like saying, hey, you know, if you come out and say, you know, this was my compliance doc, this is what it was, and you need to show this has been in existence for the last five years, even though you've never seen it, Troc can do that. If you have something that you need to be forgotten, it doesn't retain errors. It doesn't retain that core data in a way that's going to harm you down the road. If you realize, oh boy, my bad, we filed the wrong thing. You know, we're, we're just going to get rid of that core stuff. It will prove the positive you need to keep your data truly protect in a decentralized manner, but does it in a way where your privacy is protected because we don't, we don't record it. <laughs> we don't record your associations. And we also allow it to exist in a way where if something needs to be forgotten, it can be forgotten. We don't prove negatives. We don't cure cancer. We don't do all the crazy things that people say the blockchain is supposedly able to do. Uh, you know, NFTs in some ways are almost a frustration. I've heard multiple book chapters on my frustrations with the blockchain community because blockchain does very little well. But the one thing it does better than anything is if you take that thumbprint 
you put it on that network, and then someone says, prove that files existed for the time you said it's existed. It can do that with a level of certainty of more, it's, it's, you know, it's more likely to get struck by lightning three times than it is to actually have our system be wrong. Um, and it's been accepted in every court in the developed world since 2012. So that's why it underpins when we generate compliance documents that are valid because they're using tool like Grease Track or whatever someone else is using. Any other tool you're using, any other files you're using, any package you're using to say compliance is what it is. If it's stored within Rack as a third-party storage solution, we know that we can keep those completely isolated until someone truly says we need to truly see the original. That thumbprint that's sitting in that NeoPublic blockchain network allows us to prove when we pull it out, you can trust without a shadow of a doubt that if that file has the same thumbprint, that's the exact same file. Not one, not one, one or one zero has changed in it. And you can take that any court in the land and save the 20 grand on compliance costs or on digital discovery that doesn't prove anything and instead save for cents on the dollar. This is what it is. It's never been different. So if I summarize that, you're saying a document, its own identity, and then the identity gets stored. And in 10 years, you could grab that document and bring it there and it's going to say, yeah, that's the same document. Or if someone manipulated it and they tried to say, yeah, this is the same one from 10 years ago, Troct would say, I don't recognize that thing. You switched, you changed you to your, or you changed uh, me to you. You changed something on there. It could have even been a space. You, you put an extra space between these two words. It looks different to me. It's not the same thing from 10 years ago. That's what this tool is supposed to do. Yep. That's exactly what it does do every day. It's, it's exactly like if I have a traditionally how we protect documents, we think about digital documents the same way we've thought about you know paper documents, right? It's like, okay, I had this paper and someone signed it off and handed it to this guy. Now it's sitting in this warehouse and I track the warehouse and there it goes, right? But that, that only works if I have a true physical thing. I mean, the, the reality is a digital document, I can have an almost infinite number of exact perfect replicas where all the ones and zeros are the exact same. Well, what's the document, right? What's the original document? Well, there's a billion of them. There's a billion originals, right? And so the question in this new digital world is going to be, how do we treat those true originals? And when you're looking at what Troct is able to do is exactly what you're saying. It's exactly like a, 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 a thumbprint that you take at a police station. I don't know if that thumbprint was a 6'5 white guy, but I do know if I see that thumbprint in my house once the door is busted down, if I know the thumbprint and I finally do the same thumbprint, same guy, except our technology is a much higher reliability than that. That's a, that's a traditional thumbprints are pretty low reliability. Ours, again, your, your chance of being wrong with the tech we've got there is, is less than one times 10 to negative 38. That means it just it isn't happening, right? And what it allows you to do now is say, while right now, the way we're doing compliance and the way this third party approach that, that I think the industry is accepting is saying, okay, you guys are completely isolated. You're a third party. You, we can trust to keep these documents in a separate segregated area that someone could come ask for. But it's, it, we still know it's there. We're still using old tech in this third party approach. We're still saying, oh, well, because it's in this SharePoint drive and because it's isolated here, we're sure it's good because you can prove where it went. That's a good first step. But if you really look at how you unleash this technology and say, okay, because I held the thumbprint, I could hold my stuff somewhere else. I'll send you the thumbprint. You hold it so everyone can see it in this main chain, right? So the, the thumbprint exists. If EPA comes in later and says, hey, 
show us the core documents. Well, you pull out the core documents and you could then even let them thumbprint. And if the thumbprint's the same, you should be able to trust it. It's been unmodified since that time, right? But to your point is, if something's different, if you screwed up and like you just stored it in the wrong place, well, now you're going to have to get the full you know, backdoor exam of them going and tearing apart all your databases. Well, where did you store this? Where did you save it? All that other stuff. You're going to have to find that traditional chain of custody because Troc can't tell you what changed. It could be something as dumb as, hey, I had this PDF and someone then printed it and I printed it out, which creates a new digital file. You have a replica of your file, but you don't have a true original. Troc allows you to prove that a true digital original one of the billions of copies that I can send an email, it's still a true digital original. It hasn't changed. I can have 80 bazillion copies of the true digital original and Troc will be able to say that thumbprint of this is exactly the same. Five people can have that digital original, but as soon as you have any change to it of any type, whether it's substantive or not, whether it's just changing margins or it's changing some other item in it, I now have a replica or I have, you know, or, or I have some other copy and Troc will say something there's wrong. It can either prove this is exactly right this is exactly original, or it can say something's different. You're going to need to do something else. Doesn't mean it's a lie if it's not proved and tracked, but we cut the amount of oversight. We cut the amount of compliance cost. We cut the amount of auditing by using technology that can instantly prove something has been unmodified since source, no matter where it's stored, or even if it's stored in 50 different places. I remember when Paul and I were first starting out, we wanted to go get funding to actually rent a rail car that we can actually allow people to, to basically go. And uh, as a collection point, we can move around the country, right? This was the, the very first concept of the wellhead was we, I went in a Great Western Bank out here in Clive on uh, University Avenue and said, hey, we're, we're trading this amount of grease right now. We'd like to get a loan. And they're like, for what? And I was like, well, for, for grease. I'm like, how the hell do you sell that? I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's only an $86 billion industry with $13.5 billion worth of subsidies. I mean, like, well, what do you mean where we trade? I mean, we'll I'll get rid of it this afternoon. I mean, like, what do you, I mean, as soon as I get five trucks, they'll be out the door again. I mean, what, what, what are you talking about? No one could understand it. No one could understand it. Often those who are reputable didn't, uh, were perceived reputable. were always at, you know, risk of having their stuff stolen or not appreciated. There has always been this, interesting distrust in our industry because a lot of it's earned. <laughs> you, you, you have people approaching positions of saying, oh, we're doing X, Y, and Z. And you actually go look behind the hood. You're doing the complete opposite. You're actually stealing all my data, right? I mean, like there, there's, there's, there's so many in this industry that are creatively solving, you know, solutions that I don't think you, you would normally accept in normal areas. So I think that when you're looking at the sensitivities that we have to data sharing, they're earned. I think that when you look at the opportunities of things like blockchain when used appropriately, blockchain is a terribly risky tool when used wrong. It's a terribly risky tool when all you're thinking about is crypto. It's a terribly dangerous tool when you're putting certain pieces of data into places that it's not supposed to go. But doing it smartly, proving positives, proving compliance docs you can truly store distributedly, that's really going to be the next iteration. That's going to be what our industry needs. And I think that and on that side, it's incredibly powerful. And I don't think that the, the mistrust that many have in this space is unearned, but I do think that that's the great opportunity that I think we have with Rack is how, how do we actually provide the efficiency and trust that we need to prove 
that what you're selling is what you're selling? How do we actually turn Greece into something that I can trust the same way I can walk into the grocery, take a box off the shelf, and know that what's in it is what's in it? In that regard, I think what EPA is doing is that fundamentally commendable. I think the step we're taking with industry accepting the third party, third party storage concept is an important first step. But I do think that the quicker we get that part accepted, efficiently implemented, uh, we're going to be able to jump into the next, which is truly making the most out of these, these, these new technologies that when used appropriately can be fundamentally transformative for enabling the, the small mom and pop shops uh, to create products that you know, Shell and BP can trust. Chris, how can people get in touch with you? How can they learn more about Rack, learn more about Grease Track? Uh, where can they find you if they have questions? If you go to uh, greasetrack.com, there's a quick little blurb on you know why uh, why Grease Track's importance as a tool for your drivers and for collections and for our quality labels. You can see an example of our quality label on the on the page there. So get get sort of wrap your hands around tangibly what it is. Rack itself, which is you know the the contracts and evidence underpinning. That's the blockchain back storage that's there. To learn more about the bigger picture of Rack and how we're looking to eliminate greenwashing and fraud out of the ESG space in general. You can find that at uh, www.esgracks.com. And on either of those, please drop a note in a contact form. You'll get me or Ramon uh, primarily uh, as we start to build out our team right now. And uh, we'd love to, love to help any way we can in letting you prove the good work that you're doing. Yes, they can find you uh, on LinkedIn as well at uh, Christopher Draper. The, the yeah, full yeah, name. Do, um, it, it's, your, it's, your, uh, it's your James Bond action shot. I, I decided to modify. That's that's my uh, that's my plan and zoning uh, YouTube snatch. I was like, hey, the coloration on the video that night was good. <laughs> very very good. Uh, yeah, it's, some people go pay for headshots or AI things. I, I I just wait till YouTube gets a little fuzzy on the right night. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, appreciate your time. Thanks for all the insight on what's next for you. ESG racks, grease track, trucked. The EPA and compliance, I'm sure we're going to have you on again as this unfolds even more and, and Rack grows. And we're, we're really excited for you and, and what's next. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. I promise you, we'll be calling soon. <laughs> for more industry insights and education on how you can interact with the circular fats, oils, and grease economy, please like, subscribe, leave a comment, and ring the bell to get a notification when our next episode drops. Follow us on X at Fat Guys Podcast and find out more information on our show site, thefatguyspodcast.com. Thanks for stopping by.